Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm James Esposito, and this is New Books in History. I recently spoke to Keith Hillsbury about his new book, Empire Made, My Search for an Outlaw Uncle Who Vanished in British India. Empire Made was published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt in 2017. Hillsbury's Empire Made explores the mystery behind Nadja Halleck, a former colonial bureaucrat and employee of the British East India Company. Hillsbury starts with his own travels in India and his quest to find the grave of his relative who vanished. Hillsbury follows Halleck's trail through family letters, Napoli's archives, and his own contacts in the area, slowly reconstructing the life of the most interesting and unconventional man. Halleck challenged the taboos of race and sexuality in the British Empire while fashioning his own identity in the remote region of Nepal. It was a pleasure to talk to Keith, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Keith. Welcome to the show. Hi, James. Thanks for having me. So, Keith, we're, we're talking about your, your new book, Empire Made, My Search for an Outlaw Uncle Who Vanished in British India. And first off, as, as is um, typical with new books, this, tell me how this book came to be. What made you uh, want to write about history? And specifically in, in this book, as a sort of part memoir, part family history, what made you want to write about it in the way that you did? The original idea for the book was uh, more of a travel story. It was, I was in the MFA program at Columbia University and I, I took a wonderful seminar on travel writing from uh, Nicholas Christopher. And the written, the written work at the end of the, the term was to do a book proposal. I proposed a book about my travels in uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, India, and living in Nepal. A little bit of that book proposal touched on this quest for my uh, mother's, uh, you know, long lost relative. Uh, and Nick Christopher, my teacher, liked the proposal so much, that, and he knew I had an agent. He knew I'd published books before, obviously. And and uh, he said, you know, you really you really should develop this and give it to your agent and and sell it. You know, I think you can you can make a book out of this and. I took it, I stopped a novel I was working on and took his advice. And my agent really thought the, the Nigel story, the, the looking for the grave of the long lost uh, relative was the real story. She thought it was more interesting than my, my travel. <laughs> so I kind of resisted it at first, but I, I started doing more research into the circumstances of, of his life and the, the, with the East India Company. And I got more and more interested in it and because I found more and more uh, things that were uh, at odds with my assumptions about the colonial life and the people that were colonial. And so I, I thought they were all really bad. You know, it was a terrible thing. You know, there wasn't any good that, that could have come of this and that the people were scoundrels. And I started finding out that many of those people were actually rebels. The people that were running India from time to time were pretty rebellious and pretty modern in their attitudes in some ways. And uh, so I was drawn into the story by uh, learning that some of the people I could be writing about and researching were actually uh, people that I could identify with in my own sort of rebellious, contrarian nature. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, your, your book focuses on trying to find the grave of your uh, ancestor, Nigel Halleck. And you, you have this interesting parallel narrative structure where you talk about uh, visiting uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and northern India in the 1970s and 1980s, but you're also trying to retrace his steps through letters. And, and can you talk to me a little bit about where these letters came from and, and, and what, why there, there is sort of the sparse paper trail that, that you have to sort of construct around this uh, in, in your narrative? There are only a few uh, 
letters left uh, that have been passed down, uh, you know, the generations. And uh, for whatever reasons, I mean, I, I think the main reason was that most of them were probably kept, but in Coventry in England, uh, where the family lived, uh, had always had always lived. Uh, in 1940, the uh, the German uh, the Nazis bombed the city and destroyed much of the city, and destroyed the house that most of these letters were kept in. Uh, and so, there were some fragments of letters that had been kept somewhere else, I believe. And and what was tricky about it was they were just a few pages here and there, and most of them were saved because they made reference to a, a historical figure, John Nicholson, who had become a, a hero of the British Empire after, uh, at, at the time of the Indian Mutiny in 1857. And he became, you know, a, a real hero that everyone knew about. There were boys' books about him and comic books, and, you know, he was this stunning guy. And some of the later family members looking through these old letters evidently figured out that it was this well-known guy. And so they underscored his name and they threw away probably the rest of the letters and kept them just because of historical value and, you know, the sort of celebrity status of him. But there were really just a few, I think there was no more than uh, probably about 20, 25 sheets of paper from, you know, a period spanning about 11 years and, you know, they had little indicators of where they were written sometimes, and you could get context from them, but there was no paper trail, you know, there was no collected letters of Nigel Halleck that you could just refer to and, and organize by date. You sort of had to do a lot of detective work from the context and knowing where he was at different times to figure out exactly where he was when he wrote them and what he, who he was talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, no. One of the best parts about this book is the mystery. You know, I'm 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 going through the pages and I'm trying to figure out well, well, where where's where's Keith going with this? Where does Nigel end up? And it, it's really really compelling. Um, and I, you know, we we were talking about this this earlier. Is is what would you describe this book? You you call it a quest, but I would also call it an imperial history, uh, a gay history as well, and and really also. Memoir and, and, and travel book. How do you how would you define your work with Empire Made? I think it's a a, a travel detective story. It's sort of a. I, I think I wrote the book more and more as internally as a detective story because it was taking clues uh, both from contemporary times and mostly from Victorian times massing them together, searching for little pieces of meaning and connections and trying to make those connections all the while uh, being a character in it myself, essentially, you know. So it's sort of an interactive detective <laughs> detective story in my mind. Um, but it was a quest, you know, and it, and it was a quest to discover a little piece of history, you know, that was unexpected, uh, you know, the, a, a relationship between two men, a, a different cultures, different religions, uh, you know, completely different backgrounds that, you know, was not the kind of uh, story that even if they were known at the time that people talked about or, or, or wrote about. So there was it was there was like a veil, uh, so to speak, over everything, you know, and, and especially that relationship and to, to kind of make the connections was uh, it was a, it was a detective thing you know I keep coming back to that I guess because I like to read detective stories in my leisure time <laughs> well I mean maybe we can talk about that I mean uh, you're the second uh, n- uh, novelist turned historian that I've, I've interviewed first being Norman Olher uh, with Blitz and and how do you think that your previous work as a novelist informed this book did you have to do more research do you think or or was was the the construction of the book did it was it more intensive or, or you know did you have to learn a lot about the British Empire to sort of approach it the way that you did? Oh, James, it was a hell of a lot more work than writing novels. I'm telling you. I mean, I, mean, I both of the novels I published, uh, many much of the stuff was based on uh, personal experiences. It is with a lot of first and second time novelists and. Uh, you know, I would do a little research here and there to to firm up 
some specific facts, but this was going out and educating myself uh, for several years. Once the book started, uh, the writing process about the British Empire, doing archival research, doing a lot of research at Columbia University Library, at the uh, New York Public Library, uh, online through the British Library, the India Collection. Uh, lots of lots of uh, digital, you know, online research of of correspondence by Victorian people in India. There was a whole research component of it that that was a big job because I went into this thinking, oh well, I'll just there's you know going to be a book or two that tell me all about the British East India Company and get me up to speed. There isn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you under you 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 find the the joys and, and perils of what historians call historiography. <laughs> historians rarely exactly. agree on stuff, and then the stuff that they agree on is you know always sort of has a shelf life. Um, and uh, yeah, no, that that's really interesting. Coming that from an MFA was that was that daunting to sort of take on all this these the sort of uh, historians that are sort of you know. Disagreeing or, or, or sort of have different uh, interpretations of empire and, and what it meant to be in the British Empire in the 19th century. I, I encountered so much conflicting information about even basic facts that I was really surprised. And um, but I, I think the real moment for me when I actually felt like I was becoming a, a historian myself, although of course not a trained one, was when. I was able to start making judgments about some of the respected people in the field when I felt like I was catching them out, you know, like when I felt like I actually knew more about some specific little thing for John Nicholson's Christian beliefs, for example, than people who were trained historians who were publishing and making statements. And I, there was a point where I thought, no, you're wrong. (laughs) there's, There's this, there's this, I've got proof. And of course, I'm not going to take anyone to task in print, but you know, there were a couple of moments like that. And I, it was kind of exciting actually, because I really felt like all this digging and digging and cross checking it was paying off uh, that, that, you know, because I was so focused on this little tiny part of the Imperial history that I was able to dig deep enough where I felt like an expert on it to the, you know, more so than, than some of the people who, or acknowledged, and uh, you know, I'm not being arrogant about that. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of mistakes in my work, but it was exciting to to feel that it was a detective story that was, you know, coming up with the answers and, and definitive answers, and that's what history should be about, I think. And and um, I don't claim to have a monopoly on them on this topic, but by any means, but about some specific things, I feel like I probably know more about this than most most people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, no, that, was, I, oh, please go on, Keith. Well, the thing is that I I think the, the difficulty I had as a novelist, though, I think the advantages of being a novelist were being able to think in terms of characterization and developing the personal sides of people more than probably just an academic historian would feel comfortable trying to do. But the difficulty for me was making the leap of feeling confident enough to make judgments about things that I wasn't a hundred percent sure about. And what really helped me in that regard was a, a, a fellowship I had with uh, Brenda Wineapple, uh, the author Brenda Wineapple. I was a research assistant for her on her book about uh, Emily Dickinson and Thomas Wentworth Higginson. And we talked about this and, you know, cause she would, she was trying to, there was very little, Emily Dickinson's letters had all been burned, mostly. But Wentworth Higginson's had plenty of material on him, but the book was about their interaction, and a lot of assumptions had to be made or, or tested based really just on general knowledge, not specific knowledge. And, and, you know, she helped persuade me that, you know, when you know, when you do enough research and you feel like you're, you can get inside the head of someone like Emily Dickinson on some certain things, that you have authority uh, because you've done everything you can. You've, you're inhabiting their, their, their mind in a way. And, and if you do enough research and have a broad enough vision of, of the context of the time and the people, uh, you shouldn't be shy about 
making assumptions and deciding what their emotional state probably was. And for me, that was difficult because I, I, I was drawing a line between fiction and nonfiction and it was in my mind originally and it was like, if I don't have definitive authority on this, I'm not gonna make any assumptions about what Nigel's thinking was or his feelings were. But looking back on the time working with Brenda and, and some of the lessons I learned helping her think about Emily Dickinson, um, it helped a lot because I reached that point, as I said, you know, with a, a minute ago about feeling that I had more knowledge than most people about some things. And then it was okay. Like, yeah, he probably did feel this way. And I, I feel pretty confident in saying this is what happened. Uh, but it was a, a learning curve. It, it, I was really hesitant to make judgments about people that lived in a different time and had a different background and had a whole different context of living. Um, you know, and you, but you have to, if you're, you're setting yourself in the, in that time as an observer, I mean, which essentially I was. Yeah, no, um, it, I think this is a good way to segue in, into the first part of the book. I mean, if you could just talk to us a little bit about Nigel and, and, and the world Nigel inhabited and, and why he decided to join the company and go to India. I mean, you talk about this a little bit. Also, this is sort of a, a really dynamic time. This is, this is the time before... Uh, Communications are, are, you know, modern telegraph telecommunications are are available. So people in the company and, and, and this sort of imperial mentality sort of leads to sort of a little bit of roguiness or, or, or at least agency on, on the characters, including the, the Lawrence brothers and Nicholson. Um, can you talk to me about, about that? And, like, how did you approach the, the fact that uh, – Nigel didn't live in a world of instantaneous communication. He had to sort of accept that he was going on his own and he had to figure out his own way in this, this world that was foreign to him, but became increasingly familiar uh, linguistically, but also, I think, culturally. I, I think, you know, backing up a little bit there, I think it's useful to think of this time for the British in India as, as analogous to the uh, Americans at the, in the gold rush era going west, uh, that there was all this opportunity uh, out there for a, a generation of people that didn't exist at home. And in, in the case of England, and in, in the case of the middle class Englishmen who didn't have a lot of prospects, uh, you know, other than maintaining, you know, himself in the middle class, that India was exactly the same as the California gold rush was for, for someone of, of the same class and age at the same time in America. But it meant casting off everything that was familiar uh, in both cases. And what, what the British tried to do in India that was different, obviously, than what the Americans tried to do was the Americans were settling, you know, the, the West. That India was already settled and, and, you know, occupied by hundreds of millions of people. The British really didn't intend to stay, whereas the Americans did. And, and so the British had to construct a society that was uh, British, but completely insular. Mm -hmm. And the difficulty for, for Nigel and all the rest of these people was that it was really a pretty small society and, and a confining society. You know, Calcutta, the number of English people in Calcutta at the height of its glory as the capital of the, the British Indian Empire was just, you know, 3,000 Englishmen or something like that. I mean, it, there, were, there weren't, it was a very small, it was like a high school, a big American high school. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. I, and all the social cliques, you know, that you have, you know, were there, too, in, in different forms. You know, and the military, the military people didn't really mix with the civilian administrators very much. And it was even discouraged. Uh, the, the main military uh, base outside of, was outside of Calcutta on purpose to keep the military, uh, you know, the soldiery especially, but the officers as well from being too involved with the civil administrators. So... You know, you went out. He went out to India, and 
you know, he was on his own. There, there, there wasn't, you know, it took months for letters to get home. There was no telegraph at the time. You really were cut off from any kind of meaningful rea- interaction with people that the familiar people you knew, your family, anyone else. Yeah. And yet you were, and you were placed in this very insular society where you really had to watch what you were doing and to get ahead. And you had to, to do certain things. You had to get involved in certain sports. You had to uh, go to certain houses. You had to have the introductions to the right people. And then you went to the races and then you went to the, the fancy dress balls. And, you know, it was very rigorously organized. And for someone like Nigel and for other people too, like Henry Lawrence, for example, whom you mentioned, you know, the, who became his mentor there, this didn't really fit very well with their personalities. Um, they were adventurous types of people, or in the case of Lawrence, they were, they were really nonconformists. I mean, he had very advanced views about race and, uh, and things like that compared to his contemporaries. And he wasn't willing to put up with a lot of this stultifying racism and, and, you know, uh, prejudice, the overt prejudice of the, the ruling class there. And that m- marked him as a someone who, who didn't fit in. So they were out of touch with progressive people at home, of which there were, you know, in, in England. I mean, there was a progressive movement at the time. There were people that didn't believe uh, in the, the, the imperial idea, but th- they were not people that, you know, people like Nigel knew or were in touch with or the Lawrence family were in touch with. I mean, they were on their own and they kind of had to make it up as they went along. And Nigel's career in India was a process of distancing himself steadily from the accepted uh, ideas about what the British were doing and what they meant to the Indian people. And the longer he was there, the more alienated he became from the idea that the British were a master race and they were there for the good of the Indian people. And it was pretty much on his own. And then he, he found, he met Henry Lawrence and read the, the articles he'd been publishing in a, in a journal that was meant for educated Indians in Bengali. And he found someone who, who helped crystallize his thinking and he went to work for him. Uh, you know, he volunteered his services, you know, threw away chances of advancement in, in Calcutta, you know, and, and climbing the ladder to get a, a, a good position that, that would uh, pay him a lot of money and give him a higher social status. He went out into the sticks because uh, he really felt that he still believed he was doing something good, you know, I think in his career by working for the company, but he saw Lawrence as someone at once he went, went away from Calcutta that was, uh, had a higher mission and, and that he could feel good about being involved in the colonial enterprise. And, but this, it was, he went out there as a naive young man and it was a process, a learning process. And so he had a quest for his own, uh, I think peace of mind. That's my impression. I mean, it's, it's something that's hinted at in the fragments of letters more than explicitly stated. But the more I looked into his circumstances, the more I found out about his journey, the more confident I was that he was someone uh, who wanted to do good and found that the best way of doing good was to get as far away from the do-gooders as possible. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, also, I I think that there is this sort of uh, trend in Nigel's journey that, that, you know, he tries to get away from the sort of high Victorian um, rules with, with gender and sexuality. He tries to get as far away from them as he possibly can. I mean, he sort of does what he needs to do in terms of his job. I mean, he takes, takes up, uh, you know, jobs as a tax assessor and, but he gets farther and farther away from this sort of hub of, you know, uh, high Victorian culture. And, and he sort of finds himself on the sort of fringes of empire and he, he constructs it almost like a new identity. Like you've been to these parts of the world. Do you feel like when you were in, you know, remote parts of Northern India or in Pakistan or, or, or um, Kashmir or, or wherever, did you feel like that you found a certain affinity with Nigel's uh, ambition to sort of go, go far? Uh, especially in Afghanistan and 
and the northwest frontier parts of, of Pakistan, I don't think things have changed much in the mindset of the, the tribal areas and um, from the time that, that he was there. And uh, I think we have new new players in the sort of organization of things, the Taliban, obviously, and, and you know, radical Islamic thought. But the people themselves are, I think, they're, are very similar in their, their cultural makeup to, to what they were at the time of Nigel's uh, you know, life there. And I know that traveling down the Indus with my uh, Pakistani friend and... Um, was a real experience of immersion in what seemed to be another time. Because once you got away from the highways and the buses and the, you know, the schools and you were on the river and you were just these little river settlements that were very similar to what they would have been when uh, John Nicholson and Herbert Edwards went down the river in, in 1851, uh, you know, except for an odd, uh, power line and a little bit of electricity here and there and a phone line and things were they seem to be in 1850 I mean the, the pace of life the the men hanging around in the shade smoking hand-rolled cigarettes and leering at these young boys you know I mean <laughs> it was real it was really an immersion in in a lot of the stuff I read about, uh, you know, is happening in, the, in that period way back when. It, it felt like nothing had really changed. Um, and, you know, it was it was really interesting. And it was also, you couldn't help but think about, you know, the, the similarities between what the, the young men of Henry Lawrence, that Henry Lawrence had go out to the frontier to try to settle these people down. Uh, faced this kind of counterinsurgency idea that is now happening in the same area, you know, with, with different people running it, the idea that you've got to get these people involved in buying into uh, uh, the fact that it's their country and if they behave themselves, uh, they can keep it. But if they don't behave themselves, they're going to be in trouble. It's a very similar situation, you know, <laughs> very similar. Yeah, no, there is this this idea of sort of nation building and nationness and making, you know, codifying rules about sexuality and marriage and and the role of of uh, man and the role of woman in, in this sorts of in, in these sorts of places that that would not be. Uh, yeah, I, I think you're right. I don't I don't think that they're so disparate. I think um, the players, like you say, the players have changed um, so much of this book is about empires, you know, uh, in in the middle part of your book, when um, Nigel gets to uh, Nepal, you're 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 in that area as well, and you sort of encounter a Russian emigre named Boris, who is this sort of, you know, he he is the the remnants of this great game scenario that goes back through the 19th century, where the British and the Russians sort of meet in this this strategically important, but also incredibly distant and hard to access area. Can you talk about, about the, the Nepal aspect of this? Because the most interesting part of the, of the middle of the book is you're talking about how Nigel was one of the first people that was actually, or first Europeans that were actually there, and how you found, found out about that and how you constructed uh, that. Well... I, I knew he'd been to Nepal, but what I didn't know until I did a lot of research was how few Europeans had actually been there at the time that he went there. Uh, really, there had just been uh, a few exploratory people in the early part of the 19th century, and um, then the British imposed a resident on the Nepalese uh, monarchy where an Englishman and a surgeon and, you know, I think a secretary were allowed to live there, but it was... Uh, starting around 1811 or 12, but it was, uh, I believe, but it was, uh, otherwise the country was completely shut off. The, as I think I say in the book, there was nothing ambiguous about Nepalese foreign policy. It consisted of keeping foreigners out of the country. (laughs) I mean, they had, and, and barring any contact with, with foreigners because, they were they were very afraid in Nepal. The rulers the rulers of Nepal of, of coming under the British thumb. They had the geographic advantage of this 
almost impenetrable jungle along the entire border with India that was full of malaria for much of the year, a really debilitating form of malaria that was inhabited by tigers and you know snakes and every horrible thing you can think of, and which had stymied in the past, you know, uh, Indian empire builders, the native Indian empire builders, they had stopped at this jungle, the Terai jungle. They had the Himalayas on the other on the other side of the country keeping the Tibetans at bay. They were geographically blessed, but as technology advanced and as the British became more and more entrenched in India, you know, they were worried that if they allowed any kind of commerce, any kind of uh, visitation to happen that, you know, the next thing you know, the Union Jack is flying over the, you know, the temples of Kathmandu. So they, they were very determined to keep, keep the British at bay. But what ha- they were also a fairly martial people, though, that, that enjoyed um, taking over one another's uh, valleys and, and areas of Nepal. And eventually, rulers of Nepal decided to take over parts of uh, British India that were, you know, nearby and, and tried it out and got beaten back. But but they didn't get beaten back very, very severely because they were really good soldiers. And the British recognized this and they decided that to try to take over, to punish Nepal for invading and taking a few farms here and there was silly and that they would end up, you know, with this immense army trying to, to hold on to what they clawed back. So they, they, um, Establish sort of a, a modus operandi with the Nepalese, which is that the Nepalese would behave themselves. They would accept British uh, hegemony, essentially, but the British would leave it at that. And because really Nepal didn't have a lot of resources, it didn't have, you know, riches, you know, it wasn't like India. So the British, as long as they, they felt they were running the show, if the worst came to worst, they were fine. What happened is that... Uh, an ambitious, uh, an ambitious Nepali uh, decided that he wanted to uh, throw throw over the monarchy and institute his own family as the real rulers of Nepal. And he decided the best way to do this was to get the British involved secretly, uh, to some extent, in, in approving of what he was doing. And his name was Jung uh, Bahadur Rana, and he, through incredible uh, deceit and cunning and, uh, you know, just am- amazingly crafty uh, maneuvering managed to, within about three or four years, insinuate himself into the, the ruling class. He was a cavalryman, uh, make friends with the queen, who he then betrayed, and take over the country. And where this fits into the Nigel thing is that, that when young when Bader Rana took over, uh, he had Henry Lawrence, the British agent, uh, the British resident, as someone who'd been giving him advice all the way through about how he should proceed and, you know, how he should uh, present himself and, and how he should implicitly uh, placate the British if he succeeded in what he, was do- he wanted to do. And he took over the country. It worked. Lawrence was gone by then, but he had recognized young Bowder had recognized that to be in touch with the British and to have the British on his side was the best way to keep his himself in power and the best way for Nepal to remain independent. And so when someone like Nigel, when Nigel came along as a, a prospective uh, guest, you know, and a visitor that, that wanted to stay in the country, from Jung Bowder's perspective, he was someone who uh, could prove useful and um, and it seems, and then we enter the realm of supposition here because you know you never know what really happened. But Nigel's arrival certainly did present an opportunity for Jung Bador to curry favor with uh, people like Henry Lawrence, who were no longer in Nepal but were heavily involved in the direction of the British administration in India. And it seems that it was a British idea that that Jung Bowder go to to England himself mm-hmm. and uh, plead his case with Queen Victoria essentially uh, it was an idea that was really revolutionary no none of these uh, 
princes or these uh, maharajas or these subsidiary areas of these subsidiary areas of India had ever taken the initiative to actually go to England and uh, present themselves to the queen whom they were ostensibly you know, serving and or ostensibly allying themselves with. They were all, there were lots of reasons for not doing that, but no one ever did. So Jung Bowder decided to throw the dice and, uh, and go to, Na and leave Nepal and go to, uh, go to England. And Nigel went at the same time. Now, there's no proof that, no documentary evidence that, that Nigel encouraged Jung Bowder, but it seems pretty likely. <laughs> And 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 given connections that he had with Henry Lawrence and Henry Lawrence's uh, determination to keep to keep Nepal independent as well as the Punjab, he didn't believe in Henry Lawrence did not believe India should annex any more that the British India should annex any more territory. He thought the Punjab should be independent. He thought Nepal should stay independent. And at the time, his his ideas were, you know were shared by the rulers of the rulers of India, but over time, uh, politics changed in England and Henry Lawrence's views fell out of favor. So it was sort of, by that point, it was sort of a backdoor thing. He was, he was, uh, getting interested. Lawrence was getting interested in, uh, Joan Bowder as someone who would go to the Queen, who could go to England, present himself as this, uh, you know, noble, strong, reasonable man who ought to be able to keep his country uh, independent as long as he didn't interfere with the British uh, larger geopolitical objectives. And Nigel went to England, back to England at the same time. And the only city that, beside London, that Chung Bowder visited on his trip just happened to be Coventry, where Nigel was from. Yeah. Now, yeah. I, I think that it's one of those things, like I said, you know, there's no proof, but. You know, I think I can feel pretty confident in saying that Nigel has something to do with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know that makes sense. And he and, and and you know in your book that Nigel never returns. He he has sort of this brief visit with his family, uh, and 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 the letters stop coming. Like, do you? It wasn't clear in the book that I saw like when the letters actually stopped. Did he send many letters after he returned to India from Coventry, or or did they really just stop um, pretty quickly after that? The family legend was that they pretty much stopped. Mm -hmm. I don't think it was just a case of they were lost and they were written. It seems to be a case. My guess is that when he went back to, to England, he realized that his thinking about things and his whole life, by then he was romantically involved with this African prince. Uh, I think that when he went back to England, if he that he may have harbored the idea that he could go back there with his companion, you know, to England and and return to living in, you know, you know, an English life. And I think my guess is that when he went back there, he decided he realized not only was that not on the cards, but that it's not even something he really wanted to do. That he had become uh, the phrase. Uh, the phrase that's the chetnification is the phrase used uh, by a modern a modern historian about this uh, that that the English some of the English became Indianized and to the point where they didn't want it that they didn't fit in in England anymore and um, and they didn't completely fit in in India but they felt more comfortable there and I think he'd reached that point especially with this relationship that he had with a the Afghan prince, and that I think he just became, I think he'd arrived in India years before feeling extremely alienated. Now he went back to, to England where, and he felt even more alienated than in England that he felt when he came to India <laughs> originally. Yeah, yeah no, that, that, that's one of these paradoxes of empire. And I think that you do a great job in your book to, to sort of think about that and how alienating going back to uh, England in the Victorian age with with a partner of the same sex as being like you, it would be like being on a different planet. I think that you might even quote it that way. I mean, it's just so, so radically different to be almost like incomprehensible. I think, I think he felt, he probably felt that he'd, he'd crossed that two or three years before we need crossed that 
black, foul-smelling creek and entered the forbidden territory of Nepal. I think that probably but when he went back to when he went to England a couple of years later, he probably looked back on that as crossing, you know, his own Rubicon, you know, in a sense and that, that when he made that crossing unknowingly, he he'd sort of gone off the edge uh, of uh, of uh, of the ability to to return, you know, you can't go home again. You know, I think that that he probably realized when he went back to England that he become. And you know, you have to, on the practical level, you have to think too. He was living in a splendor, splendor compared to anything he could possibly live in England. You know, with all these servants and all these you know, lavish surroundings of this palace that he was a guest in. And you know, that's part of it too. Let's be honest. I mean. <laughs> It was one of the reasons that so many of the British middle class loved being colonials, is they had all these servants and they had much nicer homes than they would have had, ever had in England. And, and you know, you know these sort of upper class pastimes and playing polo and, and racehorses and all this that they couldn't have afforded at home. And, you know, Nigel was living in, you know, in, in a very poor country, Nepal, but he was living in the home of the ruler of the country, a very rich man and with all these servants and, you know, this beautiful surroundings and artwork and jewels and all this. And he was, he was an artistic fellow. He was, he had aesthetic appreciation and I'm sure Coventry looked pretty, pretty dismal. Um, you know, I think there's that undoubtedly part of it too, is that he, he had a real aesthetic side to him and he was really interested in art and architecture and all this. And, you know, he could really uh, get into that in a, in a style in, in India and Nepal that was impossible for someone of his class in, in England, so it was a combination of things, but I think probably the relationship was the big thing, you know, and and also, you know, the racism. I mean, let's be honest here. Like, he, he, it wasn't just that he had a male companion; he had a Muslim, you know, Afghan, you know, and and who was a, despite the fact that he was of royal blood, and I mean, had an incredible pedigree compared to probably most of the the titled people of, of England that were out in, in India. That didn't matter. I mean, he would come to England and he would be regarded as a second class at best, you know, person. And, and that must, you know, I'm sure that that was just impossible to envision for Nigel because he had, he had, he was not, I think every, by our standards today, most people at that time, Henry Lawrence included, were racist. But by the standards of the day, he was definitely not a racist and, and was very progressive in his thinking and um, about those matters, obviously. And, you know, people had ingrained attitudes that, you know, were those of the Victorian era. But uh, Nigel really was not someone who could have comfortably gone back to England with with uh, his partner and, and felt that it was okay to, for him to be treated as he would be treated, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk about, uh, in, in the book you, you have this really interesting section when you go to Nepal and you're trying to find the archive. You're trying, you're trying to access some of this, this 19th century, uh, the logs for the, the people staying at the palace. And, and can you talk about that? Because it, it, it is like a good lesson for, for archivists and just people that have to deal with um, records in general is that the archive you go to is just covered in snails. <laughs> can, can you talk about what it was like to actually do research under under those conditions in the early 1980s? Well, you know, there was no uh, humidity-controlled environment for all these things, and it's very humid. Uh, it was a monsoon. I mean, you know, and think of decades of monsoon weather, and uh, these things were, these had just been bound up with string. These were like ledger books, you know, and um, stored in, you know, not even in boxes. I mean, they were just stored on shelves where mice were running around, rats probably, uh, you know, snails and insects. And, you know, it's, it's like a cartoon. You take the book off, you take the book off the shelf and, blow the dust off and, and the dust is a cloud that envelops you like, you know, a cartoon. And, the diff, you know, I was given a knife to separate the pages uh, that might be stuck together. But I, I thought when he gave me the knife that I was supposed to stab any mice that were rats that might intrude on research. I really did. I mean, because it, it wasn't, um, it was presented sort of as if like, you know what to do with this. And, you know, I, I looked around and I thought, oh no, I don't know if I can... <laughs> <laughs> defend myself with this, but then it was explained, oh, it's for cutting the pages, but I think 
the the real problem, you know, is is you need a mag. I mean, realistically, was I needed a magnifying glass a lot of the time to read this incredibly tiny print that had faded, you know, over the years. And and the the problem really though was the was the organization because um, all these records had been kept, but they hadn't been kept. Uh, organized and there were just all these you know they'd, they'd fill a ledger with information and then put it on the shelf and then start another ledger and sometimes it would have the dates and the in the, the, the you know the Gregorian calendar and sometimes the dates would be on the Nepalese calendar which is completely different and um, you know month years are different months are different you know everything is different and there was it was the translation problem sometimes of just figuring out what numbers we're dealing with here what years I mean that that took a lot of time but then you would I think the secret was to to find threads that were were ones that you could follow and where the dates worked and where you seemed to be following a sequence that was chronological and you could tell by certain things when it actually happened and then you know it was sort of like assembling the pieces of a puzzle by following uh, a particular accountant or a particular record keeper who seemed to be more organized than the others because some of them were just random. I mean, you know, there, there were just pages that were full of writing that weren't dated, that referred to obscure things. And um, I was just, it was a needle in a haystack. I mean, it really was a needle in a haystack. I was looking for references to one name, essentially. And that pretty much became what a lot of it was is trying to find the right period of dates because these archives encompass more than a century, find the right period. And that took two or three visits just to get the, the ledgers that were for the right time. And just going through, <laughs> looking for a couple of different names, you know, look, looking, looking for the Jungbad or Rana, who was the, the host, and, and then looking for, for Nigel Halleck. Um, and finally, I found a couple of references to Hillock, you know, which had to be Halleck. Um, it wasn't spelled right, but how many Englishmen with that kind of name could have been there at that time? You know, it had to be him. And it was, that was the big revelation. I mean, that was, it was Eureka, you know. Yeah, no, it was really exciting reading that because there's a point where in Nepal and you're trying to find information and you, you're, you're staying with people and, and it seems like just reading the book that you're, you're like really concerned that you're not going to, you're going to sort of lose the trail of Nigel. And then you start getting information from these really interesting sources. So you go to the archive and you find it. And then your, your friend Boris, uh, can you talk about Boris? Cause he gives you all this information or, or at least tries to be this sort of maybe spy or information node in this network of, uh, Napoli's politics and, and, and Indian politics, but also Russian politics to a certain extent. Well, you know, Boris, Boris was someone who was continuing to play the great game uh, in the 20th century, essentially. I mean, he, he saw, he saw everything that he found, that I shared with him about Nigel and what, what he was able to piece together about Nigel from his own knowledge. With a through a specific lens, and that lens was that of a player of the great game. He immediately, he'd never heard of Nigel, but as I presented what information I was coming up with, he immediately had a theory, and that theory was that Nigel was a secret agent who'd been sent by the British to ensure, you know, that, and you know, like a deep cover agent to ensure that Nepal stayed within the British orbit, and, and if they were veering out of it, that he would relay this information back to, uh, back to Calcutta. And, you know, Boris had a great theory. I, I don't really think. I think it, it was colored by all his his preconception. I, I don't. I don't. I think it was a great story. But and he was a great storyteller. You know, he, as a young man, he had fought the Bolsheviks. You know, he he uh, he was a white Russian of a, an aristocratic family in Odessa, and then he he joined the ballet uh, as a as a strategy to get out of, uh, to, to go into hiding, uh, because he was a wanted man once the Reds took over. And, uh, but he, but the Reds, uh, appreciated culture and maintained cultural institutions to entertain people and to keep the, the upper classes somewhat, you know, happy as they went about 
proletarianizing the rest of the society. And, and so he, he went into hiding, essentially, as a ballet dancer, which enabled him eventually to get out of the country and go to Paris, where he became an, an accomplished dancer. He, he was part of the Ballet Russe. He was friends with Diagelev, uh, Anna Pavlova, you know, these, the, the, uh, Massine, these great, these great ballet artists. Uh, he was part of that scene. He knew, he knew, and he knew uh, Matisse. Cezanne. He's an amazing man. And uh, he eventually, you know, got out of the ballet business and went to India and started a, a social club in Calcutta, where he immediately became friends with all the aristocratic Indians and the, the leaders of British society as well. He was a raconteur, you know, he was a tiger hunter. Mm-hmm. He, 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 he had all these amazing talents. He led this amazing life. And he helped bring about the restoration of the monarchy of Nepal and the overthrow of the Rana family descended from Zhang Bahadur. And as a result of that, he was given a palace in one of these palaces that the Ranas had constructed in, uh, in Nepal and invited to open the country to tourism and start the first hotel in the history of the kingdom. No one had been allowed in Nepal for a hundred years, no, or more than a hundred, no foreigners had been allowed. Suddenly in 1951, the idea was, let's have tourism, let's build up the economy, and Boris was the man to do it. And, but high-end tourism, they didn't want backpackers, you know, they didn't want, you know, the people that ended up coming, they wanted, they wanted rich people. And so he was given this palace, and, uh, and did all these things like grew the first strawberries in Nepal, installed the first flush toilet, you know, like uh, amazing, you know, stories. But the thing was, Boris was a player. I mean, he he knew everybody that was important. Everybody knew who he was. He he had been involved in the restoration of the monarchy. He knew all the Ranas. Uh, you know, he was the ideal person to get information from. I mean. Everyone referred me to Boris because he knew there weren't books. You know, you couldn't go into the British Library, the American Council Library there, the you know the the, the American Library, and and just go to the shelves and find out the history of Nepal or find out what was really up with the Ranas. There weren't books. There was not information. You had to go to origin. You had to go to someone like Boris, who knew kind of where all the bodies were buried, and you know he was invaluable because he was really the first person who took an interest in what I was looking into and he immediately made all these immediate judgments. No, he couldn't have, he couldn't have been killed uh, on a tiger hunt in the Terai, which was a family legend because if he had been, I'd know about it. <laughs> and, he was, and, and, and he was right. You know, I mean, he was right. Uh, he would have known about it because that was the kind of thing that would have been handed, handed down the generations, that kind of a story. Uh, and, and he was a tiger hunter. He was the most acclaimed tiger hunter in India for a long, a long time. So he knew what he was talking about. And you know, and he said, he, and he's not buried in the British cemetery because I go to the British cemetery on my afternoon walk every day because I'm going to be buried there, and I know the names of all the tombstones. It was great. It was a shortcut to you know finding out all sorts of things. And but mostly it was great as I learned more about Nigel and followed up with some of these Rana people who were descendants of Zhang Bahadur. I would go back to Boris and repeat to him what I was finding out, and he would, he would put pieces together in ways I could not. But as I said, he definitely had a conception of the, web, the puzzle picture he wanted to see. So uh, he often put the, he put the pieces together to form his theory, I think, his theory was informed by his own romantic involvement in, in the Rana history, but, uh, you know, he was very helpful and he was a joy, you know, you could listen to this guy talk for hours. I mean, you know, books could be written about the adventures of Boris. And the thing is, I thought a lot of it was, you know, BS when he was talking about this stuff. It was only years later when I started researching the book that I discovered everything was true. <laughs> the, the paint, working with Matisse, working with Stravinsky, you know, acting in a film with Jean-Paul Belmondo, all this was true. <laughs> and Boris, you know, just talked about this stuff as if, you know, everybody had these kind of experiences and you have, you know, I thought at the time he's got to be exaggerating, you know, this is impossible, but, you know, it's true. It was all true. So this was, this was somebody that, you know, I wanted to put the original draft of the book had a lot more Boris in it. There's quite a bit now, but, you know, that's one of the problems with writing a book like this is when you find these amazing characters like Boris, you just want to 
that's the novelist problem is you find a great character and the history goes to the side, <laughs> you know, as a, as a historian would stick to the, the script, you know, the novelist is like finds a character and wants to run with the character. So I had to rein that in on my editor's help, you know, uh, Henry Lawrence's wife, Honoria Lawrence was another one. I could have written chapters about her. She was fascinating, but she was kind of, you know, not the main point. Mm-hmm. Um, Keith, well, well, you know, we're kind of running out of time, but can we, do you think we can reveal what happened to Nigel or do you think the reader should pick up the book and read it for themselves? You know, James, I've, I've gone around and around with the people at Harcourt about this because the British publishers are much more circumspect about, of the novel, of the book, are much more circumspect about revealing what happens in the promotion and stuff. And they took the timeline out, which Harcourt wanted, because the timeline, if you read the timeline, tells what happens. Mm-hmm. I have to say, I really prefer the reader to experience it uh, rather than talk about it, because to the whole point of the mystery, you know, and the, the quest is finding out exactly what happens. And if you let people know ahead of time, I think it kind of ruins it. Sure. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that, makes, know, that makes perfect sense. It, I think this will be a, a rare instance where we do a history book and we can't actually tell people what happens. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, if, you, if you insist, but... No, uh, no, 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 no. I think we should. I, honestly, I, I agree. I think we should uh, let the readers find out for themselves. But uh, I want to know what you're working on now. Like, what, What's your new project, Keeper? Are you writing another novel or you're going to work on history or, or what are you going to do? Well, I... I I have a novel that I stopped working on when I started writing Empire Made, um, and I'm, I've got that back on my desk, and I'm looking through it, and it's really a, kind of a, a suspense story set in London um, involving a plot to assassinate the Dalai Lama. But I'm also interested in possibly writing a book, a nonfiction book, about one of the characters in the, in, the, in, the, in the book is John Nicholson, you know, the, the hero of the Indian mutiny. And he, one of the points made in the book is he actually acquired godlike status among a cult of Indians who believed he was an incarnation of Vishnu and, you know, worshipped him much to his distress, to his life. And I started, it's really quite interesting, and, and, it, and actually survived as a cult until the 1980s in oh, wow. in in remote parts of the Northwest Frontier, according to archival stuff in the in a, in a Pakistani library I came across. But there are this got me interested in. I know about cargo cults, and I got I started getting interested in. I wonder how often this has happened, where you know someone, some stranger, you know, has has become revered and even worshipped. And I know there's a there's a group of people in the in the South Pacific Island who. Re, who worshipped the Duke of Edinburgh, essentially, and that's come to my attention. So, uh, for for reasons that are very obscure, but anyway, um, I'm interested in developing the idea of if I can find some more examples like Nicholson and and Prince Philip, that that might make a pretty interesting book, and um, and it would be lots of historical research. So that's that's on the plate, I think. Yeah. But, I mean, uh, I mean it, it, it's interesting, and I think that you, if you wanted to do this, you could close the gap between empire and, you know, our own lives. Because so many people uh, have their, their celebrities that they follow. And, yeah, you know, they get, they get kind of peculiar. <laughs> you know, like if, if you follow Twitter, people just love celebrities. And they, you know, there's always these celebrity stories of, of you know, rabid fans and, and people that have really just, you know, lost, lost um, connection with reality. And I think that, that may be something that's sort of universal in human experience or, or comes up often enough that you might be able to uh, do some work with that. Yeah, I, that's exactly how I think of it in terms of these are, these are the celebrities of the various eras for one reason or another. And they didn't have Twitter and they didn't have Facebook and all this technology, but, but word spread, you know, through the, through the grapevine or whatever. And somehow it, got people obsessed with these people for one reason or another and, and some amazing stories result. And, um, I think it's pretty interesting. Um, and, and, and you're right. I think it, it's a, it's a reflection of a universal human quality, not just something tied to like primitive societies or, you know, or, or you know, the, the conjunction of 
an advanced society and a, a so-called less advanced. It's, it's, it's a universal human desire to objectify someone and among some people, you know, and have, a, have someone fulfill a, a need that for something greater than ordinary life. And um, I find it very fascinating. The Nicholson thing really fascinated me. Some of, the, some of his followers actually killed themselves when he died. Oh, wow. I mean, you know, uh, because uh, they wanted to join him in, in his Christian heaven that they knew he, he believed in. It's amazing. Wow. No, that's really interesting. That, that, that sounds like what I would work on if I was you. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, 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 I like to pursue this. I, I, need to, I want to find some more examples, you know, and I think I can find them. I just, I'm just reaching the point where I'm ready to start researching again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it takes a while. You have to kind of, kind of give, it, give it a second. Um, Keith, well, I think we've taken enough of your time. Uh, I want to thank you for, for joining us, and I hope everyone reads Empire Made. You're, you're really welcome, James. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to talk about it. And, um, you know, the book took a long time to write, and it's all a very lonely process. So it's really interesting to finally have it connect with people. And I appreciate your, your thoughtfulness and your, uh, your interest in this. I really do. Thanks very much. Thank you so much.